Good morning. It's my honor to be with you today and to share the Word of God with you today and to proclaim the Word of God today. Uh, it's a, just a, a tremendous blessing. I, I don't know how to express uh, the gift that it is to be able to speak to uh, the students and, and faculty and friends at a place that has meant so much to me and formed so much of, of what I believe in and helped me understand what it is that God has called me to do in my life. Um, I realized a couple of years ago that, that uh, from the time in seminary to the, the time that I spent in youth ministry at First Baptist, I spent nine and a half years in Waco, Texas, which is actually the longest I have lived anywhere. Uh, and so, strangely enough, when I, when I come back to Waco, I, I often feel like I'm coming home. And so thank you for uh, receiving me today. Uh, Dr. Tucker mentioned that Matador, Texas, may not be a place that is very familiar to you. Let me help you out a little bit. Uh, Matador is just north of Dickens, uh, just south of Turkey, uh, just uh, west of Paducah, and just east of Floydata. So uh, that helps you out at all. Uh, Open your Bibles with me, please, to the book of Philemon. Uh, The tiny little book of Philemon, the letter of Philemon. You'll find it just before you hit Hebrews. And I want to... I want us to look in in pretty good detail at Philemon, so we're going to read the whole thing. But the good news is that the whole thing is not much. Uh, It's 25 verses, and so let's let's read it uh, together. Read read along with me, or not out loud, but, you know, read along with me. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you, for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, Though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful, both to you and to me. And I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, Accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, lest I should mention to you that you owe to me your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. And at the same time, also prepare me a lodging. For I hope that through your prayers I shall be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 
the end. It's quite a letter, isn't it? And this is quite different from Paul's usual output in some ways because it, it looks like an actual letter. It fits, you know, 12-point font, single-spaced, fits on a page. This is a, a note that you would get from Paul. It seems like a, a personal note from Paul and his running crew uh, to the church at Philemon's house. Compare this to some of Paul's other letters that are in the New Testament. Imagine the Corinthian church receiving as a letter 1 Corinthians. Hey, everybody, we got a letter from Paul. Whoa. <laughs> Uh, this is going to take a while to read. I guess we better get started. Uh, and it's this kind of thing that reminds us, it's this kind of note that, that reminds us that when Paul sat down to write to these churches, when Paul sat down to write to these people, Paul did not tap his quill on his, his chin and think to himself, you know what, today I think I'm going to write a book of the Bible. Uh, he, he wrote letters. And as Paul describes his ministry in various places, the, the thing that he is most known for is not the thing that he would have considered a huge part of his ministry. His ministry was proclamation. His ministry uh, was the, the forming of churches. And when he wrote letters, he was just continuing that. And yet, there's this other part of, of Paul writing letters. He wasn't just writing letters. Paul was writing as an apostle. And that's another difference that's, that's in this letter. If you pay careful attention, when Paul is introducing himself in his other letters, he usually introduces himself as Paul, an apostle, or sometimes Paul, a bondservant. First and Second Thessalonians are outliers. There he's just Paul. Uh, but here he's Paul, a prisoner. But he writes with apostolic authority. In his mind, he is writing with prophetic authority. He is writing to these churches, delivering to them a word from God. But this letter seems different. I mean, where's the theology? Where are the dense paragraphs that we all know and love Paul for, for so much? Uh, verse 6 is about all you get. If you're looking for dense, densely constructed sentences that you have to parse out, what is he, exactly does he mean? Verse 6 I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. That's a Pauline sentence right there. Uh, and usually you have paragraphs full of things like that. But where is that? Uh, where are the Old Testament quotes? This is Paul's letter and there's not a single quote from the Old Testament in it. That's weird. This is an unusual letter. And one of the little thought exercises that, that I, I learned here, actually, is to, to ask ourselves this question. If Christianity were like most things from the first century, if Christianity were like most things that we try to research that originated in the first century, we would just have scraps, just little scraps of papyrus, just little bits and pieces, not this relatively huge corpus compared to the rest of the things from the first century. If all we had, if all we knew of Christianity was Philemon, if this was the only book in the New Testament, what would we know about Christianity? Just an interesting little thought exercise. Uh, there's a story, obviously, behind this letter. There's a story that precipitated this. Uh, what would we know about Christianity? So, let's take a look. Let's see if we can reconstruct the story. There are three main characters, obviously, several minor characters, and one major character who at first seems to be lurking in the background. Let's piece together what happened, at the risk of, of telling you something you already know. The, the main characters are Philemon, Onesimus, and Paul. Paul we know. We're familiar with Paul. So at some point, Paul encountered Philemon and led him to faith in Christ. Philemon is wealthy enough to have a house big enough to host a church, the church in your house. The letter doesn't say where the church is, but a lot of uh, the same people named in Philemon are also named in the letter to Colossians. So Colossae is a good guess. Philemon's wife is part of this church, and so is Archippus, uh, that Paul describes as a fellow soldier, which probably means he's the pastor of the church. He may be related to Philemon, he may not be, we just don't have enough information. But they all know Paul, who after ministering to them at some point, founding a church in their house, he moved off, he got arrested, 
for preaching a crazy new religion that may or may not have encouraged people to worship someone other than Caesar, the jury is still out at this point. And so Paul is cooling his heels and he's writing prison letters to people like Philemon. So Philemon is wealthy enough to have a house that, or to have a, a house big enough to host church. And he's also wealthy enough to own at least one slave. And here, again, at the risk of telling you something you already know, slavery in the first century, slavery in the Roman Empire, a little different than the, the picture that we as Americans have when we picture slavery. Uh, we picture the race-based slavery that was in the, the southern part of the United States. Slavery in the Roman Empire was in some ways similar and in some ways different. The basic idea is the same. You could be bought and sold. You had no legal status or rights. Aristotle said, the slave is a living tool, and the tool is a lifeless slave. That's what slaves were. But the major difference between the, the slavery we picture in the American South and of our history uh, and Roman slavery was that it wasn't based on race. Most often it was based on who lost the war. Uh, you became a slave in the ancient world by being a prisoner of war or by being kidnapped and sold into slavery. So every time the New Testament talks about kidnappers not inheriting the kingdom of God, it's talking about slave traders. Uh, you could become a slave by selling yourself into slavery to pay off debt. You could sell one of your children into slavery to pay off debt. You could be sentenced to slavery uh, for a crime that you committed. And of course, if your mother was a slave, you were a slave. You were born a slave. Estimates range, but a good estimate is that one in five people in the Roman Empire was a slave. One in five. Now, the great Roman Empire was built on the backs of slaves and slavery. The other uh, sort of big difference is that there were slaves of various ranks. At the low end were mine workers and gladiators and the guys who rode the galleys. Short life expectancy. Tough life. Higher up, field workers, temple slaves, uh, those who did service jobs. Higher than that were household slaves who, depending on their master and depending on the kind of relationship they had, might have a fairly comfortable life with a lot of responsibility. A lot of Jesus' parables are about people in this situation, slaves who are responsible for taking care of their master's belongings, for their master's household, their master's money. Another huge difference is that household slaves often had money of their own for their own use. So a wise and frugal house slave, one willing to serve a long time, might, could, eventually earn enough to buy their freedom. But some people couldn't wait that long. And that brings us to the other major player in this letter, Onesimus. His name means useful, which was a very common name for slaves, which means he was probably born a slave. He was owned by Philemon, and he eventually ran away. So we take a clue from verse 18, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything. It's very likely that he stole from Philemon when he ran away, which makes sense since he wasn't allowed to own anything. He was trying to start a new life. But when he ran away, he eventually ran to Paul, probably seeking an advocate. Slaves had no legal rights, and so if they were going to be set free or buy their freedom, you needed a free person to advocate for you and to be your legal representative. Paul sometimes gets a bad rap in the New Testament for not speaking out uh, forcefully enough against slavery, but I want you to take a minute to appreciate the idea that when there was a runaway slave looking for help, he ran to Paul. There's not much of an underground railroad in the New Testament, but Paul is the stop on the underground railroad of the New Testament. It's entirely possible that when Onesimus found Paul, he was disappointed to find him in jail, uh, not able to be the advocate that he wanted. He, he may not have, have gotten what he wanted from Paul. Instead, Paul gave him something else. Paul says he led him to Christ, and then he sent him back to Philemon. But he sent him back with this letter in his hand. Now, that's amazing. And you, you 
we have to reconstruct what that would have looked like. Paul is writing this personal note with apostolic intent. And he, he hints and he mentions and he says, what is the gospel behind it, lurking in the background? What does the gospel demand in this situation? Paul doesn't say it yet. Uh, instead, there's pressure. Some subtle, some not so subtle from, from each side. For instance, think about all the other people that he addresses in this letter. Philemon's wife, whoever Archippus is, probably the pastor of this church, and the whole church, they get to read this letter too. They get to know what the situation is and what Paul is trying to do here. And also at the end of the letter, Timothy and Luke and Mark and all these other people that Paul names at the end, they know what's in this letter. It's like when you get a phone call in a crowded room and the person who's on the phone knows everybody else in the room and you say, hey, everybody, it's so-and-so. And everybody in the room goes, hey, so-and-so. So all of Paul's friends at the end of this letter are going, hey, Philemon, I hope this works out good. Uh, that's subtle pressure. This is more than just Paul and Philemon and Onesimus here. There are other witnesses of what's going on here. Also, Paul repeatedly mentions his circumstances. Paul, a prisoner. And he calls himself a prisoner twice. He mentions he's in prison directly or indirectly in this letter four other times. Just in case, you know, you forgot uh, that Paul is making this request to Philemon from prison. Uh, and I love Paul that, that Paul calls himself the aged, old man Paul. Hey, Philemon, can you please do a favor for an old man? Old man Paul needs your help. And Paul offers to pay back whatever Onesimus may have stolen and put it on his tab. And then he casually drops into that conversation. Please also remember, however, uh, that my being responsible for you coming to Jesus uh, is, is part of my tab, too. So you weigh whatever Onesimus stole from you and your eternal salvation. And whatever the difference is, you send me a bill. That's, that's great right there. But my absolute favorite is verse 22. Prepare also for me a logic. Uh, when I get out of prison, I hope to come pay you a visit and see how it all turned out. Looking forward to that. But he's not going to command. Paul the Apostle is not going to command Philemon to do what he needs to do. Instead, look at verses 8 and 9. Although I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. It's a request. It's an appeal. He's saying... Please, I want you to please, when you see your runaway slave, who also stole from you, I want you to please not punish him. I want you to please take him back, but I don't want you to take him back as your slave. I want you to take him back as your brother in Christ. And so if you heard a faint ticking sound as we opened up this, this book, that's because this letter is a time bomb. Uh, that's because this letter just did something that has never been done before. Kicking in the door from stage right is our fourth major character that's been lurking in the background of this whole drama. You like statistics? I know you do. Philemon and Onesimus' names both appear once in this letter. Paul's name appears three times, once in the greeting, once at the closing, once as old man Paul. But these names, Christ, Christ Jesus, the Lord, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, some kind of combination of those words, those names, all together, 11 times in 25 verses. Once every 2.2 verses for the statisticians. Jesus is at the center of this little letter. The figure, the example, the work of Christ looms over this situation. It makes a difference. So it goes like this. Paul, who holds the apostolic authority over Philemon, he can command him because of his rank as, a, as a, an apostle, he can command him to do what he knows he needs to do. Paul, who holds apostolic authority over Philemon, who holds legal 
authority over Onesimus, Paul, for love's sake, asks his brother in Christ to accept this man as your brother in Christ. Turns out the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The apostle, the slave owner, the slave, there's one Lord and one faith and one baptism. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free man. There's neither male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. This is more than can't we all just get along? Why can't we all just be nice to each other? This is a new way to live. If Philemon was all we knew about Christianity, what would we know about Christianity? We would know that whoever Jesus Christ is, he inaugurated something and inspired something that's new and powerful in the world. This is the life of the kingdom of God that's knocking down barriers and thumbing its nose at the Roman Empire and saying, yes, the Roman law says this, but instead we will be guided by the love of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ will tell us what to do in this situation. It's a time bomb. It starts at Philemon's house and it keeps going until it eventually, after centuries, blows up an evil system that built an empire or two or three. And it's still smoking and causing aftershocks as we try to figure out what this means to be brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And it's as we consider how we approach the people for whom Christ died, which is all people. We looked at the names of the major players, but, but listen to what Paul calls Philemon. Beloved. Twice he calls him brother, my fellow worker, and he asks him to be his partner. Here's what Paul calls Onesimus, my child, born to him in prison. Onesimus is Paul's prison baby. My very heart, that's who, that's who Onesimus is, my very heart, a beloved brother. And he asks Philemon to accept Onesimus as if he were Paul. Another side of this, we only get one side of this conversation, but before this letter, there was a conversation between Paul and Onesimus. Unmentioned in this letter, but part of the reality of this is that Onesimus is asked to accept as a brother somebody that used to own him. Both Philemon and Onesimus are challenged to take on something unheard of, something countercultural. But Onesimus is the one that has a real moral wrong to forgive. Except, Philemon, you accept this man as your brother, but Onesimus, you accept him as your brother too. Philemon has the law on his side, but Onesimus has to forgive the fact that Philemon at one point thought of him as a living tool, Mr. Useful. And into this mess of master and slave relationships and dehumanizing Roman law, Paul is talking like we're one big happy family. Like there's one God and father of all, like something new has happened that cancels out all the old relationships. It cancels out the old world and instead makes a new creation. So we have here a personal note with prophetic intent. And since it has prophetic intent, the intent continues out to all those who claim Jesus as Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So what does the word call us to do? And I want to suggest three things that would be required of us if we would take seriously what Paul does here and ask us to live for love's sake. The first thing is to do what Paul does here and to forego the power play. To do what Paul does and to do what he asks Philemon to do, to, to forego the power play. Paul says, I have confidence in Christ to command you, but for love's sake, I appeal to you. Now, Paul is not shy, obviously, about commanding what is necessary. And he strongly hints that he expects uh, Philemon to do what he, he asks. But Paul is not shy about commanding. Think of 1 Corinthians 5. One of your church members is sleeping with his stepmother. Nope. <laughs> you stop that right now. And if you don't, then don't come back to church until you're ready to repent. Paul is not shy about commanding. This is not a situation in which 
I'm, I'm making a request to you. Paul is saying, no, don't do that. But here it's different. In this situation in which the reality of a new creation has to break in and change everything that, that the people in this situation would have seen in the world around them, there's something higher even than obedience to a command. And it's brothers living together in unity. It's an apostle, a slave owner, and a slave laying down their rights, laying, down, laying aside whatever the world around them says that they deserve in this situation, and instead asking them each to ask themselves, who are we to one another? We're brothers in Christ. And what does that mean we should do in this situation? So we have this tendency as broken and sinful people to either see one another, whoever it is, our fellow human beings, even in our closest relationships, either we see them as obstacles to be overcome or as means to an end. This person, whoever it is, is either in my way or is a useful tool to help me achieve what I want. They're either useful to me or they're useless to me. I need to get out of my way. Uh, unfortunately, this applies to ministers as well as, if not more than, to everyone else. This person is useful to me to get what I'm trying to achieve or they are in my way. But for love's sake, we're asked to see one another differently. This person is my brother, my sister in Christ, for whom Christ died. What then must I do in this situation? So the next thing that is at the heart of, of living for love's sake is a deep trust. We like the power play because it removes this obligation of having to trust someone else. But if we're going to be guided by the love of Christ, then we're required to trust each other. Think about how much Paul trusted Philemon, even with all this subtle pressure around the edges. Think about how much he trusted Philemon to do the right thing. Think about how much Onesimus trusted Paul with this crazy idea to go back with this letter in his hand. Think about how much Paul trusted the Holy Spirit to tackle that initial awkward meeting when Philemon opens the door and, well, hello, <laughs> it's, it's Onesimus. I have a letter from Paul for you. That's what Paul trusts the Holy Spirit to do and to continue the work of making brothers out of people who'd been master and slave. That's what's at center stage, the trust that God will work through his spirit in the church, even in the most difficult situations. Paul says, I'm sending you my very heart. And that's what happens when you trust each other, when you live for love's sake. You put your heart out there. When that love is reciprocated and returned, when your trust is rewarded, you get what Paul claims that Philemon has done for other people and what Paul hopes to get from Philemon in this situation. You ref refreshment of the heart. Uh, when you, you put your heart out there and that, that love is returned, when you do something for love's sake and love is returned, you get a refreshed heart, like a, a breath of fresh air, like a, a cool drink to the thirsty. When new creation breaks into the old and broken and sinful way we usually do things, it refreshes your heart. But I think we all know that when you put your heart out there, sometimes that means your heart gets stomped on. And that's the other thing that living for love's sake requires of us. The final thing that living for love's sake requires of us, it requires us to become expert forgivers. The call to ministry is a call to live for love's sake. It's a call to put your heart out there, to continue to put your heart out there to trust the Holy Spirit to work, and to trust one another. Hopefully you're good with the Holy Spirit part. You trust the Holy Spirit to work. But we need to be prepared about the one another part. Somebody at church is going to make you mad if they haven't already, or disappoint you if they haven't already, or stomp on your heart if they haven't already. You're going to do your best, or the best that you can under the circumstances. And someone is going to say to you in so many words, you know, you're not very good at this. <laughs> Someone is going to stomp on your heart. 
One of your fellow ministers, someone out there in the world, is going to size you up and say, hmm, that's not the way I would have done it. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's not the way God wants it done. <laughs> so one of your fellow ministers is going to look at you and say, oh, you went to that liberal seminary. Or if you end up on the East Coast, one of your fellow ministers is going to size you up and say, oh, you went to that conservative seminary. Welcome to the wonderful world of moderate Baptist life. You're going to get sized up and found wanting, and you're going to need to become an expert forgiver in order to fulfill the call that God has put on your life. You will also need to become proficient in seeking forgiveness. In the course of doing your job, there's a very good chance that at some point you're going to drop the ball on something that somebody trusted you to do. Somebody laid their heart out there and you stomped on theirs. You're going to have to become good at asking for forgiveness, and that's hard for ministers to do sometimes. The challenge then, when we gather to form a community of faith, if we're doing it right, we're putting our hearts out there for love's sake. My challenge to you is that when, not if, but when, your heart gets stomped on, that you take it to Jesus for healing, and you put it back out there again for his love's sake. We will need to learn again and again to forgive one another, just as God in Christ forgave us. When Onesimus stood in front of Philemon, and they stood looking at each other, they each had to see one another through the perspective of Christ. Paul doesn't try to explain Onesimus or his actions to Philemon. That's not part of this letter, short letter. I suspect that on the other unheard of part of the conversation, that Paul didn't really try to explain or justify Philemon to Onesimus. It's slavery we're talking about. What kind of justification could there be? But he sure does talk a lot about Jesus. 11 times in 25 verses. Do you do that when you need to forgive somebody? Do you do that when you need to ask forgiveness? Who's most in your mind and, and in your heart and on your lips when you need to forgive? Is it your name? Is it their name? Who's most in your mind and on your heart and on your lips when you need to ask forgiveness? Is it you? Is it them? This is a key part of what new creation means. Does the figure of Christ, the example of Christ, the work of Christ, loom over the broken relationships of your life? Does he make a difference in those broken relationships? Jesus Christ stands in the center between us and God, reconciling us to one another. And Jesus Christ stands in the center between the sinner and the sinned against and seeks to reconcile us for love's sake. Jesus is less the character just off stage waiting to make an entrance whose influence is felt every moment, then that Jesus Christ is the stage. It's Paul's favorite preposition for Christians. We are in Christ. His life is the life that we are living in, inside of him, inside of who Christ is, is who we're supposed to be. And in that life, Paul, the former Christian persecuting Pharisee, Philemon, the former slave owner, and Onesimus, the runaway slave, can stand as one in Christ, as brothers in Christ, because they all and each are forgiven through him because he rose from the dead to begin a new creation where there are no second-class citizens. There is one who has overcome sin and canceled the long-term effects of death and conquered evil in all its forms, ancient and modern, and calls us to live like we're part of a new creation. In here, to begin with, in the fellowship of believers, and out there, in a world that desperately needs this good news, my challenge to you is to let Christ be at the center of your life and the stage on which you operate and work out your call. There's a potential epilogue to this story. How did this story turn out? This is one of those, we really wish there had been a Philemon 2, in which Paul, second Philemon, in which Paul would have followed up on this. But we don't know. I think the fact that we have this letter and that an angry Philemon didn't tear it into a million pieces is probably a good indication that it turned out pretty well. But the other interesting bit is this. Fifty years after this letter was written, a generation 
after old man Paul was finally put to death for preaching his crazy new religion. Ignatius, the bishop in Antioch, the church that first sent out Paul as a missionary, writes a letter to the church in Ephesus. And in the letter, he greets the leader of the church in Ephesus, a man named Onesimus. Same guy? I don't know. We really don't have any way to know. Right now, at that time, he would be old man Onesimus. And if it's him, you better believe he can't help but drop into all his sermons the story about that time that Paul led him to Christ and then helped him become a free man. Is it old man Onesimus? We don't really know for sure. Not yet, anyway. Uh, But for love's sake, I sure hope so. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your gospel calls us to do what we do, God, for love's sake. It challenges us, Lord, in a lot of ways. It challenges us to trust. It challenges us to forgive. And I pray, Lord, for these that are here today, Lord, that in the broken relationships of our lives, Lord, that in the, in the broken parts of the world around us, that we would be bold enough to live for love's sake. God, that we would be bold enough to put our hearts out there. And God, that we would be obedient enough to forgive. We thank you, Lord, for the reconciliation that we have found with you, and that our sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we would offer that same reconciliation and that same forgiveness in our own relationships, God, and, and teach others and, and model for others, Lord, in the church to be the advance guard of the new creation, Lord, and illustrate it in that way. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this word today. And we ask that you would help us by your spirit to live by it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.